God, you are so good. And I'm so thankful for the privilege of being able to open your word and to know that you will meet us right where we're at. We are in need of your intervention tonight. We are in need, God, of you to step in and to make us grab a hold of and receive what it is you want to speak to each of our lives, individually as well as as a family here. And I know, God, that as you continue to, to cultivate and as you continue to plant and as you continue to, uh, to, to invest, Lord, I know that every one of us could walk out of here so, so glad we came. So, Lord, for the therapy that need be performed here on each of us, Lord, tailor make bespoke to each of us that ministry tonight, be it in worship and praise, be it in prayer, be it in your word, Lord, in fellowship, Lord, meet the need. And Lord, as you take us through this very rough and tumultuous, turbulent time in David's life, may we get it. May we be able to get it and go, oh, wow, I needed that. So for every one of us, regardless of whatever it is we're going through, meet us there now. And Lord, minister, speak to each of us in such a way so that we know clearly you're here to address every issue of life in our hearts. So, have your way now, we pray. Let there be no distractions. Lord, be that internal or external. And Lord, overcome any resistance we would have to a move from your spirit tonight. So we commit ourselves to you. And we pray that tonight would be amazing. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's say tonight as I would any night, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your authority. By the way, can I just say, I'm just so thankful that you're all here. Okay. Our timestamp is roughly 1000 B.C. A young man whose name means beloved, David, Davidum, is the youngest of eight boys. He is called a man after God's own heart. In 1 Samuel 13, 14, he's commanded to be the commander over God's people to replace a man who has clearly walked away from, or I should say just has not risen up to follow the Lord the way he should. He had a fantastic calling, but he had no real consecration in his heart. God would actually compare the two when he says then, when he speaks to this incumbent Saul, in 1520 he would call him a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So by chapter 16 he is anointed, David is, as the replacement for the failed Saul. By verse 19 of that chapter, he will play music for a stubborn, unrepentant, incumbent king. By chapter 17, he will take Goliath in the name of the Lord of hosts, the name of the God of the armies of Israel, and God will take this man down through this boy who's probably a teenager at the time. And that's got to be a high point. I mean, it's one thing to be a guy and to be able to see the giant fall, but it's another thing to be a teen guy and watch the giant fall. What an amazing highlight that must be. God has anointed you. God's confirmed it over such a radical victory. But unfortunately, the very victory that God wrought in your life can often breed animosity in others. It's amazing how someone who is running from God's calling, it's amazing how somebody who is, who is really resistant to surrender in humility to the love and the will of God in their lives. Oh, they're happy to take God's blessings, but the callings and the challenges, they're much more reluctant to receive. It's amazing how such an individual will have such a problem with you when you start experiencing victory in your life. And the same people who seem to be on your side, the same people you would have gotten behind, in some cases, people that appeared to be giants before you, 
all of a sudden seem to really have a problem with you when they see the calling of God on you and the anointing of God on you. And it's the same anointing they once experienced experienced before they themselves really turned their back on God. And it is amazing how much Christian culture you can play out and still be unrepentant to God. How much job you can do, how much work you can do in the name of God. And He can even bless it because He blesses His Word. It doesn't return void. He can still pour forth His Spirit out. He can do amazing things. But it is amazing how much can happen for an individual and still be, really, to be honest, disobedient to God. As we see with Saul. And Saul, by the way, will die in that disobedience. Forgive me for the spoiler. Then animosity becomes pretty grave by chapter 17, just the chapter after the giant goes down. Because by chapter 18, the animosity against David becomes so obvious that Saul tries to kill him with a spear. By the next chapter, chapter 19, he will try again to kill him with a spear. Now, I remind you, Saul was head and shoulders taller than every other person in Israel, but he was nothing compared to Goliath. And it is amazing now how David has a very big and a huge challenge. And I want to remind you, David's life seemed to be, for all intended purposes, hunky-dory until the calling of God was placed on his life. It was then that resistance came. And the resistance came from a very unusual, an unlikely source that you would have unexpected source. And that was from other people you thought were on your side. People now that when you start to move forward are very reluctant to see you move forward. Because somehow you're moving forward somehow demonstrates that they're not. Even though they're maintaining or appear to be. But in the next chapter, Saul will try to kill his own son, chapter 20, as he defends David's character and faithfulness. And at that point, David now becomes a fugitive. David has done more now than just lost a little bit of comfort. David's done more now than just lost his routine, lost a little bit of money, lost his stuff. He's pretty much lost it all. He has lost his family. He has lost his house. He's lost his neighborhood. I mean, David went, I remind you, from following the sheep to a gig of playing music for a Saul that is clearly tortured because of his unrepentance. He's now running for his life. And David is fleeing to caves, thickets, woods, any place he can to just, to be honest, just to get away from not just Saul, but now that's the entire army. So consider the fact that David, and we've talked about it, David's kind of playing the role of Jason Bourne. Everywhere he turns, any person could turn him in. And there's the danger. And I want you to know, if that's where you feel like you're at right now, even if you're melodramatizing the situation in your own heart, you realize things are rough, you're being challenged, things are being turbulent, you're full of tribulation, things are not going well for you, and even people that you thought should be super godly now are actually kind of getting super weird. I want you to know that David understands. No, God didn't have to do this with David. God didn't have to let David go through anything. He could have just boosted him up, made him this awesome king, gave him lots of wealth, and everything would have been great, and we would have loved the story, and we would have had nothing to relate to, let's be honest. We would have gone, you know, even Superman has to have kryptonite, because if he doesn't have kryptonite, granted we're talking a fictional character now, with Superman... But even with him, we, and the reason why they did that is we couldn't relate to him if he didn't have some flaw. And 
the times when you go through the hardest struggles, the times when you're actually really being thrown to the mat, are the times where the people are actually looking the closest to see whether this God you claim is all you need really is all you need. Because at that moment, it's kind of all you have. But please understand, it appears to me that with David, as well as with all of the greats in Scripture, there's this season as Abraham is, is wandering from his home to find a new one. It's Joseph, if you remember, in fleeing, being sold by his brothers and sent as a slave then into Egypt. It's Moses who would spend 40 years in the back of the desert. It's the, the nation Israel that would wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation died off. It's David in this season of fleeing and running for his life. God seems to have a season where you get thrown into the crucible, certainly not under your own request. And mine either. I would never want God to do that. But if we could see the results that are going to be born from it, to be honest, well, that's going to be actually... We would really want the results. We would just not really want the required classes to get there. Now, if you think about it, David actually had learned how to follow sheep. So he had learned how to be a shepherd. He had learned how to watch sheep, protect them. He had learned how to be a shepherd by following sheep and watching them. But in his fleeing time, he would actually learn how to be a sheep. It's in that time where we actually really suffer, where we really find ourselves having to discover how important it is that we have a father, a shepherd. Someone who cares for us. The ironic thing is, it's at those moments we actually question his care. Let's be honest. Like, God, if you loved me, I, how could this be the case? How could I be going through all this trouble? How could I go through all this struggle? And the problem is, it's in those very things that the world dishes out in surplus that God shows himself faithful as the one who carries us and is our peace at those moments. In all moments, just those moments, we need it more than we actually think we do otherwise. So by the last chapter before this one, as we now get into our text, David has fled for his life and he flew to a, he fled to a town called Nob. In Nob there was a priest. The priest's name was Ahimelech, which means my brother's the king. And as David flees to Ahimelech, he has to lie. He tells Ahimelech that he is on a secret mission. I mean, he's fleeing from Saul. He doesn't want anyone to know. And then he tells this priest, hey, I'm on a secret mission from Saul. Do you have any bread and do you have any weapons? Ahimelech will give him now the bread that is taken off of the table of showbread to be replaced with fresh and Goliath's dagger. After a brief capture in one of the Philistine capitals, Gath, where he feigns madness, he is released. And now we have this place. But there was one thing that's been left open. And just like God, just like a good writer, he leaves a cliffhanger. And the cliffhanger was this one. David was where the priest was in Nob. There was a person who saw the priest give David the sword and the bread. We haven't read about him yet beyond that. But his name is Dog. D-O-E-G. And where I come from, anyone named Dog is not to be trusted. You know, people are like, well, yeah, what's up, dog? That was never a compliment where I came from. So David now has escaped. Would you feel afraid? Would you feel alone? Would you feel confused? Here's the beauty of all the people that God can allow this to go through this. 
It's David, because David's more than just the character we get to watch here. Clearly a real human being that suffered this, but he's also a songwriter. So we really get this beautiful little insight into his heart as he's experiencing a lot of these things. And during this particular time, he will write 52 of the 71 psalms that are attributed to David of the 150 we have that are called psalms in the book of Psalms. So David now has fled from Gath. And he's made his way now in chapter First uh, Samuel 20 into chapter 22. Read it with me. David therefore departed. He departed from Gath of the Philistines. And from there he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to ask, are there anyone, is there anyone here who would like to read tonight? I'd like to do any reading. I have two psalms that I would love to be read, but I need them to be read with passion and emotion. Now that probably already intimidated you out of it, right? Is there anyone here who would like to do any reading? And don't be afraid. We're family here. Anyone? Awesome, Claudia. Okay, anyone else? And just ain't that just happening. Okay, Claudia and Marcia. Okay, I want you to be ready. On the back of your page, do you notice there are two psalms? After you've gotten those handouts. It should have Psalm 142 and Psalm 52, is that right? And this is part of the fun of us actually having a Bible study. Where what we're doing is we're studying the Scripture, there's time of preparation where we're able to take these Psalms that David has written, and in some cases clearly we can insert them where David is living at the moment he wrote them. And let's face it, if you actually see someone in concert, isn't it, don't you feel like you know them a little bit more if they kind of tell you, this is kind of where I was when I wrote this song, this is what I was experiencing, you know? I mean, we hear songs about people, you know, it's like, and you realize, wow, that song probably wouldn't have meant remotely as much, but knowing where, what he went through, this song has revolutionized me. Well, be ready. So I'm going to give you them 142, and I'm going to give you Marcia 52. And this mic will be for you. I'll call you up to do it on the mic. Yeah, but, yeah, I see you didn't know what you were volunteering for, right? Don't worry, you go. Okay, so listen. David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's house heard it, they went down from there. But stop, stop, stop. Look at verse 1 again. David therefore departed from there and escaped. He had departed from the land of the Philistines and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. It says, and then his brothers and his father's house heard it. They went down there to him and everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, Everyone who was discontented gathered to him, so he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. Are you with me on that? Okay, Claudia, come and give it to us. Claudia. Psalm 142. It should be, um, you know. Okay, up, up up here. We need it in the mic. I know. See? See, now Marcy can have second thoughts. Thank you, A contemplation. Okay. A contemplation of David, a prayer when he was in the cave. I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord, I make my supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. In the way which I walk, they have secretly set a snare for me. Look on my right hand and see. For there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. 
I cried out to you, O Lord, I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my prosecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. Thank you, Mr. Thank you. Thank you, Come on now, come on. Now, look at by the way, I don't think any of us realized how amazing her reading voice was. Did anyone other than me? I'm like, man, I could actually listen to her read whole books. Just like that. I just, that was beautiful. Okay, now listen. Okay, listen to this. It says, notice, a contemplation of David when he was in the cave. Well, what cave is the cave? Well, we have a cave specifically called here the cave of Adullam. Do you see that here? Adullam, by the way, means justice of the people or the people make right. Hmm. For what it's worth, it's allotted to Judah, but it's actually at this particular moment in Philistine territory. But listen to this. It was just beyond or at the, at the aves of or the entrance to the valley of Elah, which makes it then about two miles south of where David fought Goliath. It was near Gath, about 13 miles west of Bethlehem, where David was born, on a hill roughly 500 feet or, if you will, 152 and a half meters high. And it is rich with caverns that can hold hundreds of men. Now, don't miss this. David leaves Gath and he goes back to this place close to or on his way to where he got his last victory. And I think there's something really good to learn from that. David has just thought he was going to die in Gath. The king, remind you, this was the place where David had slain his tens of thousands. And the king, he's, he's brought before the king and he drools on himself and scratches at the doorpost. And the king is like, don't I have satellite? Why in the world do I need this numbskull? So get him out of here. And David flees and he's like, oh my goodness, I'm free, I'm alive. And then he's like, but the place David goes is he goes to the place where he, he saw the last victory of God. And can I say that when you're in a time where you see great struggle and you feel like you've been taken captive, Get back to that place. Go to that place where you saw victory. You know, and whether that's, you know, what was I doing when I was really experiencing that great victory? Was I in the Word? What was I doing in fellowship? What was I doing in regards to my attitude towards prayer? It's amazing what things change when you get back to that place. But David now is in this cave. And I remind you, he's in this cave alone. And he's afraid. He knows at this moment that anyone who was a soldier that David fought behind or fought with, or led, because he was a commander of the army, could now turn and shoot him. So David writes this contemplation when he was in the cave. Listen to this. I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice, to the Lord I make my supplication. Don't miss this. David is not just saying, you know, in my heart I'm singing. David is at a point where he is outwardly crying out. Now, that's one thing for some people that you kind of know they're just kind of people that cry out. You'll probably run into one on your way home tonight. But David's a fella, and he's not just a fella, he's a, he's a warrior, he's a fighter. And this fighter that has been victorious to take down giants and to take down tens of thousands is crying out. What a profound vision that would be to see that, to see this guy crumble. And what David starts to say, and don't, don't miss this, I pour out my complaint before him. Now, what this tells, and by the way, the idea of this is emotional discord. I am pouring out all of this stuff inside of me that is grinding at me, and I am pouring it before God. It does not say, I pour out my complaint to God before Him. In other words, I'm not complaining to God about God. I'm complaining because my 
If I can just say it simply, it sucks at this moment. This is a really rotten moment in time. And David says, I'm going to pour it out before God. It's like, I'm just going to make, I'm just going to, you know, you do that to anyone else and you just stunk up the room with your attitude. But he goes, I know with God, I'm just going to pour it out before God. I'm going to declare to him my trouble. When my spirit is overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. You already knew where I was going in all this. And you knew the way that I would walk. Oh, look at they. They secretly laid a snare for me. You know, look at my right hand and see. And listen to this. This is the powerful part of this to me, because what David is experiencing could be, could be so far from the truth, but David doesn't know it yet. What David says is this. There's no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. That's a pity part if you ever heard one. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Notice what David's doing. David's like, I feel so alone. I feel like nobody cares that I'm suffering like this. Did you get that? I remind you, David wrote this while he was in the cave. Did you get that? So while David is writing, nobody cares about me. Nobody acknowledges me. Go back and read 1 Samuel 22. Listen, verse 1. David departed from there, escaped to the cave of Adullam, and when his brothers and his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Did you get that? So while David is writing, nobody cares about me. Nobody cares. And you hear, honey. It's your mother. I baked some cookies. I mean, how weird is that? Am I the only one in the room that finds this kind of funny? And the only reason I kind of find it funny is I'm not in the cave. That couldn't have been funny for David. But understand, David's like, nobody cares. No, I'm just here by myself. He has no idea that his whole family, that's mom and dad and Seven brothers are on their way to the cave. Now, David, here's the funny part. David is hiding out. Which, what that means is, David is trying to be at a place where nobody can see him. How did his mom find him? You ever wonder? You know how she found him? Because she's a mom. Does that make sense? When you're a mom, somehow you just kind of know, yes, he's going to be over there. But what gets funnier to me is that it's not just mom, dad, and the seven brothers who show up. Look at verse 2. And everyone who is in distress. The word is matzoch. Matzoch means to be confined or disabled or narrowed. People whose lives have been really limited because of Saul. Everyone who was in debt. Nasha is the word. It means to be led astray or deluded, seduced. Or be stuck in some form of bad interest loan. And everyone who is discontented. The word is nefesh. It means to breathe. In other words, people whose lives were like, <sighs> you ever have those kind of days? My, by the way, I can always see where my wife is, even if I don't check her body language, by how many times I hear her sigh. Her, if it's like a couple sigh day, it's a pretty good day for her. But there are days where you could just tell she's just jagging herself around and she's like, <sighs> she's a sigher. And that's the word that's used here about discontented. People that are just, you know, when some people, when you're frustrated, you're like, 
You know, that's where this person, and he goes, so here's what David, David again is, I'm all by myself and nobody cares. And mom shows up and dad shows up and seven brothers show up and then roughly 400 other people show up. Good thing he's in a big cave. But I remind you, David is hiding. Which means that David is hiding because he thinks any footprints or any footsteps that he hears, any broken twig, any rustle of leaves, unless there's a wind involved, means somebody's about to point something at him to kill him. David has a bounty on his head, and he, and he has one, and Saul doesn't want him dead or alive, Saul wants him dead. So imagine, David's kind of hiding out, and he's kind of trying to write this psalm, he's trying to get deep enough in the cave so he can light something, so that he can actually write and he's, he's, he hears the sound. He's like, oh, man, there's a sound. Someone's going to kill me. Someone's going to kill me. Someone's going to kill me. God, where are you? I thought you cared. And it's like, hi, honey, it's mom. You know, and amazing that how weird that is. And so David goes from nobody cares to I cried out to the Lord. And I said, you're my refuge in the portion of the living. Tend to my cry, I'm brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors. They're stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me. But they shall deal bountifully with me. Now notice, David's focus is still on everybody else, on all the things that want to take him down. And because David is in that situation, David can't actually see things clearly. And when you focus on your trouble, you really can't see things clearly. And you really can't see the peace of God the way you want. He's like, look, and I know that you're my refuge. But he says, then, the refuge has failed me in verse 4. So he goes from refuges failed me to having figuring out that any refuge but God is going to fail him. And this is what happens when we're put in the crucible. What happens is we realize God's really the only one we need, as we say. So let me ask you something before we even move farther. And we've only gotten to two verses. Good thing it's not a long chapter. Where are you at tonight? Are you at that place where you really find trouble and things are kind of coming at you hard and heavy and you're just feeling really, really alone? Can I say God knows the importance of Christian family and He knows how crucial fellowship is at those moments. It tells us in, in Proverbs 18.1 Whoever desires to isolate himself seeks only his own and rages against all reason. He says, man, you know what? Here's the problem. When I go through hard times, I'm one of those people. I want to tuck away and not face anyone. I just want to seethe and be nasty and internally spiteful and just kind of be really nasty and prickly, basically turn into a cactus by myself. The Lord says, you need fellowship at this moment. And, you're like, and I'm like, yeah, but I don't want fellowship at this moment. And God's like, yes, that's why you need fellowship at this moment. In this particular moment with David, what's clear is God knew David needed family. And because he knew he needed family, he brought it to him. And that family would be more than just mom, dad, and seven brothers. It would be 400 other fellows because David needed more than just that family. He needed fellowship. So we read in verse 3, this is what David does. And I wonder if David would have done this had the guys not showed up. Verse 3, it says, David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So we brought them before the king of Moab and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now, 
stop. Why would David take his parents' family to Moab? Why Moab? Why not Edom? Why not far north? Why not far south? Why Moab? I'll give you a hint. It's on your sheet below the two psalms. Why did he go to Moab? Well, someone's got to have an answer. Because, right, his family was from Moab. David was the direct descendant of a Moabitess named Ruth. So David was actually taking his family back. Now, I don't know how much of his family is still alive, but if you think about it, David might have been able to take his family back to older family. That's a pretty radical thought. Now, I remind you, when Ruth came, she went and she stayed in Bethlehem. She called, declared herself Israeli. Your God will be my God. Where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will be, I'll be buried with you, Mom. And so I get that. But I could see David looking, going, you know, I really think this king might be a little soft to us. We have family here. So he takes them and gets them out of harm's way. Now, let me ask you, do you think David would have done that with his parents? Had he not the other fellowship? Or would he just hung on to mom and dad at that moment because he would have felt, again, terribly alone? I kind of wonder, but I think, you know, when you do have healthy fellowship, where you can sit around other people, and by the way, his healthy fellowship, I remind you, were people who were just in distress, they were in debt, they were discontented. What they were really, really sick and tired of was the king of the day. They were really sick and tired of the way things were in the world around them, and they knew they needed something different. They're like, man, this is just so stupid. So for which case then, and I just kind of get the idea, because David's going to need to be a raider. He's going to have to be, in essence, a banshee. And because of that, he really can't, have, he can't be taking old mom and dad along with him because he's putting him in harm's way. So he drops him off and says, hey, look, if God takes care of me in all of this, then ultimately I'll, get it. I'll come and get you. Verse 5 says, now the prophet Gad said to David, don't stay in the stronghold. And I remind you, he's in the stronghold now. Um, you know, well, you get it. Depart from and go to the land of Judah. David departed and went to the forest of Charet. Okay, you all see that, right? You're all in the text with me? Okay, nobody's nodding. You guys are with me in the text, right? I know you're so enthralled by the story that you really just can't move, right? Okay, well, don't miss this. Do, do we read anywhere in verse 5 that the prophet Gad showed up now? Do we read anywhere? And then came the prophet Gad. I don't get that. I don't see it anywhere in the text. The last verse, I remind you, is David dropping off mom and dad. But I want to remind you back in verse 2, he says, everyone that was in distress, everyone that was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him. And I kind of get the idea of the 400 guys that were there, God put within the 400 a prophet. How totally cool is that for God to do so? He wanted to make sure that his fellowship was going to include his word. It wasn't just going to be a bunch of people hanging out, because here is the danger. Please hear me. You can actually harm a person's walk by being overcompassionate. 
But what we really want to do is just be a soft shoulder and not speak correction when we need to or not speak truth. And you can just say, well, somebody's kind of hurting and so they're just going to speak all of these things, their feelings. Somewhere down the line, someone's going to tell you the truth because if they don't tell you the truth, what you're actually doing is letting them believe that the lies that they're saying are true. And what happens is you can actually co-sign into a person's problems. We call it silence is complicity. By simply kind of going, oh, yeah, I know you're hurting. I'm just going to, and you nod and you look and you're definitely concerned. But someone always like, yeah, you know what? I'm concerned, but that's a lie. And you need to be able to be at that place. I mean, David, he's like, look, nobody cares for my soul. Clearly at a moment like this, that's not the case. Who would tell him of those 400 people? And I would like to believe if no one else, Gad would. And I know that Gad's that kind of guy, by the way, because he's going to show up more than here. What we're going to find later on, by the way, is when David commits at the end of his life, he'll take a census of all of the fighting men that he has, and he'll be rebuked by Gad the seer or Gad the prophet. That's Second Samuel 21 or First Chronicles. I'm sorry, Second Samuel 24 or First Chronicles 21. So Gad doesn't seem to have a problem crawling into David's grill and telling him he's wrong. No, look at we've got to have we've got to be willing to be people. Now I'm not talking about being mean or nasty or insensitive, but we cannot be compassionate at the place where we're doing it at the expense of truth. And I've got to be honest, one of the hardest lessons I've ever had to learn was how to temper my compassion with wisdom and truth. Because I just want to wrap my arms around everyone and go, oh, man, I, just, I know you're struggling. I know things are rough. But there's got to be more than that. Or what's going to happen is they'll come to you simply to be a bed to lie on instead of being a launch pad for them to go and, and, and see this change. David could have still said he was totally alone and he was totally helpless and he was totally, you know, nobody cares. And yet here he is, he's going to have 400 of the most faithful guys he will ever know following him around, fleeing from Saul. And David's going to lead them. We read that Gad, by the way, will actually record, he'll have his own book. We read that in First Chronicles 29-29. He'll say that there are things that are written in Nathan the prophet and the book of Gad the seer. All of that to say this. David, a moment ago, was just crying out and saying, nobody cares. He's totally alone. Paul would say the same thing if you remember. At the end of his life, he says, look at my first defense, nobody stood with me. Man, here's Paul, man. He planted all these churches. He'd raised up all these elders and leaders and pastors. And when he had to go and, and stand before Caesar, nobody stood with him as a character reference. They were all too afraid. But I imagine he must have been crushed. But then he said in the following verse, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. He's like, my first response was, man, when I looked around, I'm like, man, there's nobody here but me. And the guy goes, excuse me. David now has dropped off mom and dad. And as he's dropped off mom and dad, well, David, we read in verse 6, Now, Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now, that tells us that David now, now Saul recognizes this isn't just David directing with, now there is a troop. Now, imagine what that would feel like for Saul. Saul has declared war on David, and David appears to be amassing an army. But let's be honest, David has done nothing to recruit. Have you noticed that? Always be careful of the person who's either trying to convert the saved or recruit. Because those people can often be very dangerous people for unity in the body of Christ. Well, it all depends on what they're recruiting for. Well, Saul, from his perspective, what he sees is there was a David, now there's David plus 400. Well, that would be quite intimidating, especially since the guy's already known for taking down tens of thousands of warriors, mind you. 
So when Saul heard that David and his men who were with him, or were with him, had been discovered. Now Saul was staying in Gebeah. Gebeah, by the way, we'll read by this time. The last time we saw that was chapter 15, verse 34, where we read it as Gebeah of Saul. That's Saul's palace, Noah's house. Saul was staying in Gebeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with a spear in his hand and all his servants standing about him. And I remind you, one, I mean, if there's a mental note to make, Saul's got a spear in his hand, don't come close. Three different times now, 8, 10, 19, 10, I'll say 8, 11, 19, 10, and 20, 33. Saul has tried to kill someone with it. Twice David, once his son. So he's standing there with a spear, or he's sitting there with a spear in his hand. And his servants were standing all about him. Verse 7, Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, you Benjamites. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? All of you have conspired against me. <coughs> Excuse me. There's nobody who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there's not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is to say, Now, who is he blaming? Who is Saul blaming according to this verse? His son. Did you notice he's blaming his son for turning David against him? But the truth is, David's never been turned against Saul. Throughout the rest of Saul's life, David will never turn against Saul. He'll have the opportunity to kill him on at least two occasions and will not do so. But Saul is turned against David. And now David, is, not only is David blamed, but of course his son, Saul's son Jonathan is blamed, and all of the people for not telling him. So he says, There's no, one, no one feels sorry for me. Now did you notice in both cases with David and with Saul, they were both feeling sorry for themselves. Did you notice they both had that in common? But when you're unrepentant and running from God, this kind of pity will turn into paranoia. What you see with David is that kind of pity will turn into praise. And the difference is David poured out his complaint before God because he realized life is really rough and I need to pour it before you, God. I need to pour it before you and I need you to make sense of it. In this case, Saul's just pouring it before people. Did you notice that? You're never going to get a solid answer from people better than you would get from God. But why wouldn't he bring it before God? Because he's running from him. The last thing he wants to do is get God to help him run from it, from God. And there's a danger here, beloved. A really big danger. Because when we run from God, and we don't want to humble ourselves, but we want to just tell God what we want to do, ultimately what's going to happen is everybody else is going to be the problem but us. And I watch people that are like this. Well, you know what? You're the problem. And then you're the problem. And you're the problem. Well, you don't understand. The reason I'm... Yeah, I'm not going to admit that I'm bad, but if I were bad, it's because of all of the people who did stuff to me before. And, you know, I'm gonna, and I've got a list of them. But I'm not bad. But if I were bad, it's everyone else's problem. And, and you know what happens when it's everyone else's problem? It never gets fixed. Because you can't make everybody else fix your problem. You realize at a point like this, Saul is completely... He, he's completely running from God and in doing so... He thinks everyone's against them. Verse 9, Then answered Dog. Remember that guy? The guy that saw the priest give David the bread and the sword, the dagger? Then answered Dog the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, and Ahimelech, 
the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. He's ratting out David. Hey, what's the term we use here in this country? You know, like in America, we might say he ratted him out. Like, what's that? Grass? You grasped him? You grasped him up. And like, is that like a football term? Like you threw him to the ground and made them skin their shins so they can cry? Yeah, I don't know. Okay. So, okay. So, Doug is grasping him, grossing him. Right? Thank you. I feel already like I've, I've grown tonight. So the king sent to him and let the priest. Now, Saul running from him, he's going to pull the priest up there and he's going to call him because Doug has grasped him out. Did I say that right? Grossed him out. Okay. So, the king, verse 11, sent to call him elect the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were in Nub. And they all came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said, Oh, why have you conspired against me? Do you see where Saul is? Everywhere? It doesn't matter what you know. If you're in front of him, you're the problem. Why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse, and that you gave him bread and a sword and inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day. What does Saul think David's doing right now? He's waiting to attack Saul. Did you notice? It appears what Saul thinks is David has actually gathered his men and he's going to kill the, kill the king. The problem is David actually is the king. So Hillelech, let's try that again. So Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law? Who goes at your bidding? And who is honorable in your house? I mean, of all the people in the world you think are going to kill you, I would kind of say this would be the least likely guy to do that. Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant. Or to anything in the house of my father. For your servant knew nothing of all of this, little or much. The king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And Saul now has gone completely off the rails. Then the king said to the guards who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord. Because, notice he even calls them not just the priests, but the priests of the Lord. Did you notice that? Because their hand was also with David. Kill him because they stand for David. And because they knew when he fled that he did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. So the king said to Dog, well, you seem like a rotten little dog. Why don't you do it? You turn and kill the priests. So Dog, the Edomite, turned and struck the priests and killed on that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. Also Nub the city of the priests. He struck with the edge of the sword both men and women, children, nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. Now, do you realize how mental this has gotten? Because Saul won't repent. An entire city was killed. Not just a priest. Would have been horrible anyways. Not just all of his family, 85 guys. We'll see one's left. But also every person that lives in the city and every woman, and every baby, and every ox, and every sheep, and every donkey, and every other thing that seems to breathe is not breathing anymore in love. Why? Because David is still fleeing for his life. But I remind you, because David lied to Himelech. 
Ahimelech was telling the truth. He's like, I didn't know. He told me it was on a secret mission. He said, do you have any food? Do you have a weapon? I gave it to him because I thought he was working for you. I mean, look, at this guy is as faithful as a guy is going to be to you, Saul. Why in the world would I ever doubt that? I'm totally innocent. But see, nothing looks more guilty than, the, than through the eyes of a guilty conscience. So he's like, no, 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 no. This is clearly not the case. Has Zog lied? I mean, really, what he said was, I saw David get bread. I saw David get his sword. Debatable on the inquire of the Lord thing. But I definitely saw David get bread and his sword. Was that true? David did get bread and his sword. He did it by David's deceit. But what Doug saw was, I saw you, I, hey, I saw you give the guy bread. Did you give him bread? I saw you give him a sword. Did you give him a sword? And that's true. Now he's dead. As is the whole group. Verse 20. One of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to David. Eighty-five people dead, but one guy seemed to make it out. Interestingly enough, his name means my dad or my father is the greatest. Or is great. Verse 21. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Dog the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons in your father's house. Stay with me. Do not fear. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. But with me you shall be safe. Okay. Marcia, that's your turn. David, and we'll see, according to the text, David writes a song from this. To the, to the chief musician, a contemplation of David, then Dog the Edomite went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. You love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness, Selah. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living, Selah. The righteous shall also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, Here is the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise you forever because you have done it and in the presence of your saints I will wait on your name for it is good. Man, you know, people are going to want to just rewind the MP3 through those two sections and just get so blessed by those two amazing reading voices. Look at this psalm to me, with me. Listen, why do you boast in evil? Almighty oh, man, 
Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. Oh, you love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. God will likewise destroy you forever. He will take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you out of the land of the living. Think about that. Selah was a musical break because something so deep was being said, you needed to think about it again. Often what I tend to do when I get to a Selah or a Selah is that I'd like to go and just read that text one more time through and go, oh man, what am I, okay, I better really get this. So somewhere in this, David is filling these with these Selahs. And in this, don't miss these first five verses. David clearly here is bitter. He is angry. He's vilely angry. Do you get that? The question is, who is he angry at? Who is he angry at? Okay, listen to these words. You rather lie than speak truth. You love deceitful tongue. And then he says, people are going to look and laugh and say, there's the man who did not make God's strength. Who lied? Who lied? Was it really? Look back at the text. Who does David blame in the text? Blame himself. Who was the one who lied to the priest? David was. David was the one who said, Hey, I'm on a secret mission. Can't tell anything about it. I got any bread and a weapon. That was all David's lies. That wasn't Dog's. What Dog said was, Hey, the guy gave him bread and the guy gave him a sword. And that was truth. That was truth. Understand what David said. No, notice this. This happens when you're in one of those rough moments because what happens is you get tempted to bend the truth to try to get a little bit farther. You feel like you're being challenged and you feel like if I could just bend things a little bit, I could definitely gather a bigger crew and I could definitely get what I need in this situation. I don't know how I'm going to get it otherwise. And David goes, they're going to look and they're going to laugh and say, you know, if you just made God your strength, you wouldn't be doing this. God would be taking care of you. Why did David lie to Abiathar? Because he wasn't making God his strength. He's like, oh. God's going to rip you out, you lying tongue. Have you ever gotten to a place where you hate yourself because of what you've done? There's something like, oh, I just could wish I could rip out my tongue, or I wish I could take that back, or I wish I could never have said that. I wish I'd never have done that. That's where David is. You understand, in these moments, what God is going to pull out in the crucible is he's going to pull to the surface those moments where David really has not relied on the Lord though he thought he did. Oh, David is in love with God. That seems clear. And he wants God's heart. That's clear. But David still has things competing for that love with God. And God is going to bring every one of those out and rip them out of him. And because what God wants is a complete, single-hearted love. And he just doesn't want competition from nonsense. And then David in the midst of us goes, Oh, you lying tongue. I killed these people. And my lies, the whole town is dead because I lied to a priest. Now, truth be told, that's not completely true. We know the fact that this is because Saul is unrepentant and he's a madman at this moment. And he just wants to kill anyone and everyone around him that somehow smells like David. I get that. But when a person's like that, when you know that you've even contributed the littlest bit, Man, it's so easy to condemn yourself, and that's the job of the enemy is to accuse you to you. But David doesn't end that way. 
Verse 8 says, but I am like an olive tree. Where? In the house of God. He's like, oh man, I need to get there. Because notice, by the way, does he trust in God's justice or judgment in verse 8? What does he trust in here? God's mercy. You don't need mercy until you're wrong. So it was like, I know that if I can get to the house of God, if I can just get to where the Lord is, there's mercy there for me. This is, I'll praise you forever because you've done it. Somewhere in all this, David didn't make his way back to Shiloh, or he didn't make his way back to back to Bethshemesh, or make his way back to these places where he thought, or make his way back to Nob. Nob wasn't there anymore for him to get to. But somewhere in all this, David knew that if he could just get alone with God, he could make this right. Do you realize the difference between David and, and Saul was not that David was perfect. David was the one who lied. David was the one in trouble. Saul was the one in trouble. David felt pity for himself. Saul felt pity for himself. But David took that pity to the Lord and he poured it out there. Saul took it and he threw it at people. David took his guilt and he threw it before God at the house of the Lord and he got God's mercy and he knew it. So he said, you know what? I'm going to praise you forever because you've done it. You've done what? You've done it. You, You gave me mercy. If David hadn't gone to verses 8 and 9, David would still, every song from this point on, would be writing about how horrible of a wretch he is as a human being. Because he could live forever. I mean, could you imagine living with a conscience that knows that your lie had helped cater to the death of an entire city? Could you imagine living with that? David's like, you know what, God, I've got to, I've got to take this to you and I need, this, I need you to take it off of me. Not because I deserve it, but because you delight in mercy. I, mean, I really need your mercy right now. So, I'm going to praise you forever because you did, because you've done it. And in the presence of your saints, notice again how important fellowship is at a moment like this. I will wait on your name because it's good. Because I don't understand why I'm going through all that I'm going through, but I do know this, you're good. I don't understand why all these challenges are happening, but I do know this, you're good. I don't understand how my, that I feel like if I make one bad move, it's going to hurt so many people, but I know you're good, God. I don't know why I feel unsafe or I feel like people that were once my best friends have turned against me or people that I trusted and I thought were great were now, are now crazed people and they're, and they're just acting insane and they're, they're, they're totally done everything they can to try to destroy me. I don't know why all this is going on, but I trust you, God. This I do know. I don't understand this, but I know this. You're good. And so I don't have to understand it to know you're good. I can't reconcile this to your goodness. So I just have to trust your good and you're going to work it out anyways. Because even though I can't figure this out, I know you're merciful and I know you're good. And I know that in the presence of your saints, I'm going to praise you anyways. Because really, you're worth it. As we go to prayer, in our text, what's become clear in all of this is David's in a very hard way. Now, look at I don't know if you are in a hard way or not. Maybe you are. If you're not, I guarantee you know someone that is. And in a moment like that, chances are in those hard moments, they want to drift off into somewhere else. And, they, and it's amazing is they'll tell you that they don't want to be around people, but then they'll go hang out at the clubs or go and hit the bars. And that seems strange to me. 
because I'd like, you know, I haven't been in one like that in a long time, but I kind of assume people are still there. I can't imagine anyone going to the clubs to be alone. And yet in all of this, we can make excuse after excuse after excuse where what we really need to do is humble ourselves before God and take everything to Him and then get among God's people so that we can get normal all again or right again. See, what David understood was that even if every circumstance around me seems to dictate the opposite, God will always be good. And I need to trust Him in that. And I can't imagine what it would be like to be one of the twelve of Jesus' disciples staring as he, as he dies on a cross and trying to reconcile that God is good over this. Reconcile how this is going to in any way benefit me. Even though he had told me on at least five different occasions in one manner or another that he was going to do it, it was already ordained for him and that somehow this was going to be for my sins. And yet somehow in all of that, the verses that almost even the newest believers seem to learn we skip over the line that we can say it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. You know that verse, right? What's the next part? Oh, it seems like every, almost everyone in here said that. Lean not upon your own understanding. We skip our path there, right? Because we're like, hey, I'm just going to trust in God. He's going to direct my path. Somewhere in between that is you can't lean on understanding. Well, if I can't lean on understanding, what can I do? I can trust in the Lord. Doesn't that what I'm supposed to do first? He put that first for a reason. If I trust in the Lord with all my heart, I don't have to understand to know it's going to be okay. But rather, in all your ways, do what? Acknowledge Him. Do you know what that means? Seek to find God in it. Look at this. Seems like a pretty crazy time. This is a weird season, or whatever. People are nuts, or whatever you want to say. But I know this, God. I trust you. I'm not going to lean on what I understand, but I'm going to seek to find you in it. And what's amazing is you could find God even in the, the weirdest of places. Sometimes it's just Him carrying you. Sometimes it's just Him being your peace. Sometimes it's God actually. Showing you that he's very in control and you're cared for. While you're crying in a cave, being a caveman having a pity party, God brings your family and a bunch of fellowship. And you have a lot in common. Because you have not only that clearly you have all been in one way or another treated dodgy by Saul. They're all fugitives. And David could have built his fellowship around that. You could have a church that's like, I hate the church church. We all had problems with other churches and we're going to be here and we're going to... You know, what's amazing is we don't talk about being a better church. We just talk about how everyone else's church is bad. That's so goofy. But notice David doesn't seem to have that mindset. Instead, what they're going to do is they're just going to get on their faces before God and say, God, you're good. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for our sins. Do you know why? Because God is good and he loves you. And when Jesus was buried, you were buried with him if you said yes to him. you know why? Because God is good and he loves you. And when he raised Jesus from the dead to give you new life, do you know why? Because God is good and he loves you. 
And when he gave you a choice to say yes to that gift, though you could never earn it, do you know why? Because God is good and he loves you. He didn't have to do any of that. But he's good and he loves you. And when he poured his spirit inside of you as a guarantee and transformed you from the inside out and adopted you and called you his and made you the apple of his eye and called you beloved, he didn't have to do that. But he did it because he's good and he loves you. And if he could do all of that, and we had light affliction here, and what Paul would talk about, what he went through when he called that light affliction, I can't even imagine what we would, he'd look at our lives and what he would call it. And though crazy things happen, this we could be sure of. God is good and he loves you. So this is what I want to do. I want to take a moment and we just want to pray. And if you will, a declaration of allegiance to this simple fact that we know God is good and he loves us. We know Jesus is our Savior. We know that his resurrection gives us a whole new life. And then after that, we're going to take about five minutes or so, maybe a little more, just give you a moment to go and get a coffee drink, but also, that's detailed as well, of course, take a moment to find someone to pray with them. But then we're going to just take another moment. We're going to have a little bit of an afterglow. And again, the idea of that's kind of a praise after party. Because David says at the end of it, I'm going to praise you then. Even in the midst of the whole horrible, what I've done has become. And granted, David's contribution was very small compared to the maelstrom that, of course, that, that Saul would make it. If David ended up with this, if I could just get planted in your house, God, if I could just get that. This I could be sure of. You're merciful. You're good and you love me. I'm going to trust that. Just pray with me, would you please? Lord, I want to thank you so much that you care. I want to thank you that you're good and that you love us. I want to thank you for the way that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. I want to thank you that he was buried and he rose again. That you raised him and you raised us. And I want to thank you that you've given us a place where we can actually go and, and seek to just pour our hearts out before you. To let prayer be more than just a scheduled event. God, you know who in this room right now is struggling. They're in the crucible and they would really rather not be. And yet, God, in being a shepherd and raising David up to be the shepherd king, he would have to learn how to be a sheep and he's learning. And it's a rough, rough course. So I pray right now, Lord, for every person in that place. Me included, Lord, wherever we can't figure it out, wherever we're confused. God, that we would be able to remember that you are good. That you love us. Keep us, Lord, from bolting out of fellowship. Keep us, Lord, from just trying to crawl into a lone place and 
and where we could just be selfish and be full of pity but for ourselves, but rather, Lord, bring in those, Lord, who are also discontent with the things around, but first and foremost want you. And as we take a little break for a moment and then just sing a few more songs of praise to you and worship you, let it be genuine worship, God, where we can lay our lives before you and trust you. So please, Lord, please have your way. Jesus, Son of David, thank you for dying for us. Thank you for raising from the dead. Thank you for giving us new life and giving us a choice. And for that, Lord, that we don't have to say it over and over. We can say it once, but we want to just say again that, that, that you are our Lord and Savior. And because you're Lord and Savior, Lord, we really want to trust you. Bolster our trust. Even in those moments where all the circumstances seem contrary to what we understand, cause us not to lean on our understanding, but rather to rest in faith. Grab our feet. 
chill lifestyle we don't need.
take a moment here. There's anyone that needs prayer right where they're at. And they're comfortable to do this with the people around them. Just hold up a hand for a moment. Let the people around love on you for a moment and just pray for you. There's anyone at all right now.